Hello, and welcome to Central Banking On Air. My name is Chris Jeffrey, Editor-in-Chief of Central Banking, and I'm delighted to be moderating today's discussion, Reserve Management Responses to COVID-19. The social and financial market disruptions of March 2020 were pretty much unprecedented. Within a matter of days, many countries around the world had instructed their citizens to conduct extreme social distancing via lockdown in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Fears about the economic implications associated with this major health emergency caused pandemonium in financial markets as many counterparties rushed to be the first to de-risk their positions into cash and other safe assets. To meet financing requirements, many were forced to sell any assets that they could rather than what they would have preferred to have sold. Non-banks struggled to raise cash to meet margin calls on derivatives positions. Leveraged investors withdrew from government bond markets and major dealers stepped back from repo markets. Selling pressure in bond markets, including uh, the risk-free U.S. Treasuries, became acute. The need for cash resulted in widespread redemptions from money market funds and a major pullback from emerging markets and high-yield investments. More than $80 billion would be gone from emerging markets within a matter of weeks, with hundreds of billions more pulled from funds in advanced economies. Peak to trough, the S&P 500 fell around 35%, and median corporate bond spreads in the U.S. widened from around 100 basis points to 450 basis points, while lower-rated bonds saw their spreads, some of them exceeding 10 percentage points. The meltdown represented an extremely severe multi-jurisdictional real-world stress test for reserve managers. In reality, it was only due to unprecedented interventions by first and foremost the Federal Reserve, as well as by other central banks, both in uh, developed and emerging markets, that the route was stopped, at least for the time being. There are still worries about second and third waves of COVID-19 lockdown and the associated economic costs and policy responses not to mention concerns about loan and bond defaults and the implications for banks and bondholders moving forwards. Much is, is still very uncertain. What does seem clear is that fiscal burdens have gone up, tax revenues have gone down, and monetary policy is likely to be loose in most places for quite some time. So how are reserve managers dealing with all of this? I'm delighted that we have three distinguished experts joining us today to share some of their thoughts on navigating these challenges. They are Andrew Abir, Deputy Governor of Bank of Israel. Andrew previously ran the markets department at the Israeli Central Bank. Marco Luis, Engagement Manager for the World Bank's Reserves Advisory and Management Partnership, or RAMP, program. Marco is previously the Head of Reserves at the Central Bank of Colombia. And George Laliashvili, Head of Financial Markets at the National Bank of Georgia. So, gentlemen, thanks very much for, for joining us. Before, before we kick off, let me stress that this is an interactive web seminar. So if you're listening in, please feel free to enter questions that you would like to, in the, onto the into the online system, and I'll endeavor to put them to our panelists during the course of the next hour. So let me start by asking you, Marco, if I may, um, how severe was this market turmoil that we saw in, in March and, and early uh, April? What were the most no noteworthy main features from your perspective? Um, absolutely. Uh, thank you very much, Chris, and thank you very much for, the, for this invitation to participate. So I think and from, from a reserve management perspective, one of the most severe issues, of course, we had a lot of market volatility. However, that market volatility was beneficial considering that are invested mostly in, in, in safe assets, even those that have invested in, in non-traditional assets such as equity spread bonds. They have relatively small locations that we from uh, survey on, on reserve uh, asset allocation last year, and that found that even those that have diversified have small locations to to equities or other assets. So that means that on average, actually, uh, reserve managers' performance perspective must have done very well. But actually, the real challenge uh, that we heard, of course, from from the members of our program, but also, of course, from our own portfolio managers that are in charge of managing around $200 billion, uh, is that uh, liquidity was the major challenge. And the fact that uh, even for very high liquidity, uh, very high quality issues, uh, liquidity was lost. Uh, for example, the case of treasuries was, was noteworthy. The fact that even treasuries were hard to trade. 
uh, and that, that was a significant challenge. At the same time, that a lot of institutions, central banks, of course, in particular, were asked to provide liquidity uh, from reserves, and not only reserve managers, but also, of course, other uh, official investors such as sovereign wealth funds and, and pension funds. So, leading, I'm um, actually dealing with this uh, severe liquidity crisis and having to use your portfolios uh, at the time when, when actually securities that are supposed to be liquid are no longer liquid or not as liquid as you thought. Uh, I would say that. What was that? Was the biggest challenge for reserve managers? Thank you. That's, that's very interesting. Um, George, what, what was from from your perspective, just looking at the markets? Uh, how did you perceive them? Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on this uh, panel. So I fully agree with Marco. Liquidity was a big concern, and in many ways, the, the volatility and stress in the market was was unprecedented. Uh, so the volumes were down about uh, roughly 50%. So the spreads have, have uh, widened by 10 times. Maybe the, the implied volatility index a good measure of market stress reached its uh, highest, highest level since 2008. So by, by many measures, yeah, it was a stressful situation. Uh, so uh, let me uh, quickly overview the, the timeline of uh, how the things have, have unfolded. I think uh, the financial markets have followed the uh, news that were related to the COVID outbreak. I think it all started sometime mid-January when the investors realized that so there is a serious outbreak in China and there is a human-to-human -human contagion possible. But that has relatively mild effects. So then I think late February when the uh, disease started spreading in, in Europe, so it, everybody understood that it, it's it become really serious and the turbulence already uh, affected even the government bond markets. And then later in early March, when uh, the oil exporters could not agree on the production quota, I think that's when the uh, crisis started deepening uh, most. And that's when the investors started looking for, desperately looking for more cash. And that's when we've seen most of the dislocation and loss of liquidity in the major markets. So the corporate bond spreads have surged. And uh, so uh, most of, of the March uh, until uh, central banks, most notably New York Fed, has intervened with their like drastic measures. Uh, uh, so we, we've seen the uh, markets being being shattered. But with the central bank interventions, things have calmed down by end of March. And uh, since then, we have gone to more or less stable times. Thank you. And Andrew, what about from your perspective? Was, was this the, the worst that you've seen? Uh, how, how would it compare? And, and what sort of general observations would you, would you make? I think one of the advantages of my longevity in the markets is that I have a number of sort of uh, cases to compare it to. I started in the markets just after, just before the 92 ERM crisis, uh, and September 11 and 2008 were all, I think, similar sort of events in terms of the um, drying up of liquidity, the drop, the sudden drops in markets, the volatility. Um, so. The coronavirus, I don't think, is, is extreme in when you compare it to those sort of events. But there are two things that make it maybe slightly different. The first one is that we're coming after a decade when there's a generation of people growing up in the markets who doesn't know, who don't know what a bear market is. Um, and so people's reactions is probably a little bit diff uh, different to what it was in previous ones. The second factor that makes it different is that now we're dealing with what is essentially a health crisis, and that the determinants of that health crisis are not going to be, and what will solve it, are not really going to be monetary policy or fiscal policy. They're going to be health policy. And that leads to a large amount of uncertainty because we don't understand, I don't think anyone really understands what this virus is, how long it will be around, and how quickly will the various measures being taken um, get the situation under control, whether, whether we'll have a second spike in infections. These are all degrees of uncertainty that have nothing to do with monetary policy or fiscal policy. 
Monetary and fiscal policy can certainly help, and we're in a better position than we were, say, in 2008, because central banks have had plenty of years of experience in rolling out various different um, policy measures that can calm the markets. But in the end, we're left with a great deal of uncertainty about how it's going to play out in the next 18 months, and that uncertainty is all due to health issues rather than financial issues. Thank you. Um, I wanted to also ask each of you uh, what the, the sort of specific experience was like from, from your own vantage point. So, George, um, you obviously are at a small, open, uh, emerging market central bank. Um, what were the sort of main priorities and the biggest challenges, stress points that you had? Was there anything that was surprisingly uh, difficult or, or, or maybe easy, uh, perhaps not, but uh, that you could remark on from your perspective? What were the, the key challenges that, that you needed to overcome and, and how did you set about doing it? Uh, let me put it into a context of like uh, what George, George is, is, is about as an economy and the role of the reserves. So we are a small open economy with uh, free capital mobility and uh, modest but still exposure to international financial markets. So uh, despite uh, the reduction in, in past years, our financial market is still, uh, financial sector is still highly tolerized. Hence, during the times of stress, the one we faced past couple of months, the role of international reserves and their management increases significantly. Basically, those are the exact conditions why we need to hold reserves in the first place. So due to Georgia's political geopolitical location, so times of stress and external shocks are relatively frequent. And uh, while we do not have excess reserves, they are within adequacy range, but on the lower, lower side, the priority is to keep reserves liquid. So with that in mind, uh, about 90% of our reserves invested in uh, AAA-rated assets, and our benchmarks are government bond indexes. Uh, in addition, so therefore we were well prepared for this type of stress if one can be prepared uh, for such unprecedented crisis. Uh, in addition to the reserves that we hold as good reformers, uh, Georgia has a good support from the International Monetary Fund and other IFIs, and usually has access to additional liquidity when needed. So this was the case once again when we have negotiated extension of the existing IMF program and secured significant um, support from, from the donors. So that, that said, uh, the, the liquidity was a priority for us and we had to use uh, part of our reserves to supply uh, foreign currency to the domestic markets. Uh, obviously, uh, there, there, there are multiple reasons why we need to supply foreign currency. So one is the, the intervention need, and another is uh, supply of domestic banknotes, which both have, have increased uh, uh, early March. Uh, it also coincided with a period when we all were moving to work from home. So that obviously had uh, created discomfort some basic things like uh, traders having one monitor of the notebook at home instead of four in the office. Uh, we needed to uh, mobilize liquidity at the time when it was lacked in the international market most. Uh, so the traders in the major financial center, they were also moving to remote work and this created additional disruptions. So efficiency on the trading risks was, was affected, of course. So as part of uh, our uh, investment strategy, we keep a sizable portion of our reserves in US treasuries, uh, which uh, is minimum 70% and in 
practical terms, we had even more. So we have high-rated spread products, triple-rated spread products. And uh, during the times of the stress, those assets were in, in high demand. So although we did face the, the liquidity issues and we uh, uh, had problems liquidating our positions, but in relative terms, the uh, securities that we had in our portfolio uh, performed relatively well. So we were able to meet our liquidity needs uh, efficiently. At the same time, we had uh, some long positions in the interest rate options, uh, which uh, we do trade when we have uh, active use and our traders earlier in the beginning of the year saw some small chances of high movements in interest rates. And uh, these chances have materialized and we were able to uh, liquidate those positions with significant profits. Uh, there were some issues uh, uh, with regards to the hedges that we had in uh, our futures positions, and not all of the hedges worked really well because of the market dislocations. Uh, apparently, it's, it's our, our assumption, uh, uh, everybody were thirsty for cash and uh, tried to uh, accumulate as much cash as possible, and it was not uh possible for for the derivatives markets to uh function efficiently at the, those times so there were some issues with derivatives hedges which normally uh work work well thank you that's very very interesting um andrew what about from from your perspective um uh, what what kind of worked what were the worry uh were the sort of stress points for you if if any and uh, what were the surprises, perhaps? So our starting point is a little bit different from that of uh, Georgia's. We're also a small open economy, but one that has um, pretty large foreign exchange reserves. So our, our reserves are in, uh, well, when we went into the crisis, were in excess of $130 billion. And they actually increased throughout the crisis because the uh, government was actually raising foreign exchange abroad and selling it to us in order to finance its budget deficit. So our, our reserves have actually risen during the crisis to uh, close to $150 billion. We've also been undergoing a process because of the large rise in reserves over the last 10 years or so um, and the reduced need for liquidity and more need for return on those reserves. We've moved into non-traditional central bank uh, assets for foreign exchange reserves, um, particularly equities and investment-grade um, corporate bonds. So our portfolio going into the crisis was around 15, had around 15% equities, and it had around 6 to 7% um, investment-grade corporate bonds. And so this was a pretty severe testing of our ability to manage risky assets in a less friendly environment and with quite dramatic drawdowns in a short period um, of both those assets, both equities and investment-grade corporate bonds. Um, and we haven't, in all this period where we've been building up these um, riskier assets in terms of equities and corporate bonds, we haven't really faced a major drawdown in that period. The one possible exception that was 2018, but then it happened towards the end of the year when we'd already built up a fairly decent return and then equities corrected. This time, the correction occurred right at the, right at the beginning of the year, so that we hadn't even built up any sort of cushion or, uh, of decent returns before the correction had occurred. Now, we have been trying to educate um, both the, the board here and the public that the, uh, any evaluation of the performance of the reserve should be done over a longer-term horizon, not a one-year horizon, but a three-year horizon. Still, this, was, yes. this was the first major test of that, and, and also just to see how, pe how nervous would people be given the drawdowns that were going on. And so that was the first test. And 
I'm glad to say that no one really panicked. There wasn't any major pressure to sell risky assets. Um, the question was, though, as the markets were falling, your actual percentage of the your target percentage, we had a 15 percentage target for equities. As the, the market was falling, that um, actual allocation of, of uh, equities was dropping. And then the question goes, when should you buy back in to build it up to your target level? I think that's one of the things that we found most difficult to do because when markets are falling very quickly, you're very reluctant to come in there and buy up those risky assets, bring your um, allocation back up to what your target level was. And the bounce back in the market, I think, has been the bit that surprised The bounce back is so quick that we were underweight most of that time um, during it. And that's a, it's a tricky process to take uh, to actually to manage. And even today, I think there's a reluctance to continue to add equities to bring us back to that initial level of 15% because there's a natural reluctance or, or doubt about how um, stable this correction is going to be. I think managing that uh, adjustment process has been just as challenging as managing the initial shock around the, the fall in prices at the beginning of it. And one thing that's worked well so far is that the bond which we always envisage as a hedge against the equities and having a relatively, you know, trying to get a, a relatively long duration to be a hedge, that performed during the initial stage of the crisis uh, very well, and there were capital gains on the bond portfolio. But now, bond yields have dropped so much that you begin to hesitate to think whether it will continue to be a hedge if there's a second wave, and therefore a second wave of equity falls. Will bonds still give you protection against your riskier assets? And I think that's the, the major dilemma that we face today. Thank you. That's very, very fascinating. Um, Marco, from, from the perspective of the World Bank Treasury, um, if you can, and, and then from the ramp participants that you speak with, um, what, what were some of the challenges that, that, you, can, that you can share with us? Um, sure, Chris, absolutely. Well, first of all, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's good to take into consideration that, I mean, I, I'm, personally, I'm still surprised about this event, I mean, first of all, uh, we can actually look at this in, in like at two different components. We have a health component, which is a virus, uh, which of course we still don't know much about. We still, there are many unknowns about this, this purely uh, from a purely health perspective. On the other hand, we have the lockdown, right? Or the what the IMF calls a great lockdown. The fact that, uh, well, the, the world economy is basically shutting down a large swathes of economy, right? Uh, but in a very uneven fashion. Uh, you have different countries taking different measures, right? Even within the U.S., for example, uh, where I live, you see different states making different decisions, right, about what the right path is. Uh, and the truth is that we all basically <laughs> don't know what the, the, the impact of the lockdowns and slowing down the disease or not. So there are a lot of unknowns, and, and they are actually I mean, even though they are related, they are not necessarily connected. The fact that, uh, so when you have that, basically you have a extreme levels of, of uncertainty. So just understanding the virus does not actually give you a better understanding of the financial markets and the risk of the portfolios. Uh, by the same token, just understanding the lockdowns and dynamic of the lockdowns doesn't really help you understand uh, what's going on with the financial markets and the portfolios. So uh, just all of that basically to say that uh, what we have seen basically an increase in, in request of, of technical assistance in terms of understanding what's going on and what that means for, for portfolios. So what we do, of course, we provide technical assistance to, to central banks, sovereign wealth funds, pension funds. Um, we tend to strengthen all, all their asset management approaches. But I would say that for the past two or three months, a request for assistance has been more ad hoc to understand certain parts of processes for example, they're trading up how their uh, business continuity, which we'll discuss later, uh, after other problems, how its allocation should be thought about in the new environment. So it's morely, I mean, it's actually the demand for this type of, of has increased. So there are more 
questions about everything, I would say. So risk management uh, in, in general. So, so I would say that it's mostly I mean, the fact of level of actually understanding this crisis uh, presidency, right? We have no historical presence to be because even in 1918, when we had this uh, flu, the Spanish flu, we didn't have a major lockdown. We didn't have a, a, the, the, um, the financially, uh, the world economy as interconnected as it is now. So, uh, so I think it's it's really important to take that into account. Uh, that of course, uncertainty is is definitely going up, uh, and 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 that has increased, of course, uh, this this type of questions and requests. Thank you. You mentioned uh, some of the business continuity um, issues, and, and George talked about it earlier. Some of the challenges that um, that they faced at the National Bank of Georgia. What were some of the the, the big issues, and how did people get around them? Oh, okay. Work. Yes. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Marco was we, asking on the yes, the business continuity um, elements. Uh, yeah. how, how were people managing that and and uh, and getting around it? Okay. Absolutely. So, what we saw, I mean, just by and large, what we saw is that uh, central banks being conservative as they are. Uh, they actually were not prepared for this type of events, um, by and large, I would say that because uh, I think uh, central banks, of course, are very conservative. A lot of them had business continuity processes, particularly regarding, for example, natural disasters and technology issues. But few had actually thought of, of this scenario of having uh, to have your whole staff working from home. So we've seen very uneven responses. So for a lot of them, actually has been very, very challenging. A lot of them basically do not have the, I think most of them don't have the technology. So they had to basically improvise to get to make sure that technology would allow their employees to work from home. Uh, and that was a significant challenge for a lot of institutions. Still, a lot of, for example, institutions we talk to, they still don't have like a, I mean, they, they are not able to do the same things at home as they, as they used to do in the office. Uh, an example An example of that, uh, it's, for example, the fact that they are not able to connect to their systems. Uh, for a lot of institutions operating, SWIFT has to, actually has to be done in the office despite the lockdown. Uh, so so the response has been very uneven. And also the fact that uh, in most institutions, uh, employees have had to work from their own personal devices. Uh, sometimes they don't have the best personal devices at home, for example, because they, that's no longer or it was no longer usable or that practical to have a, a very powerful laptop at home. So uh, the, the the technology and then and that's also something that uh, I think a lot of institutions uh, had not considered before. They need to include, of course, these going forward into their into their business continuity plans uh, because that's an area where where definitely there could be a lot of improvement. Um, so that's a yes. Thank you, um, Andrew. I don't know if you wanted to mention anything about how business sort of continuity. This is different. This is not, uh, as Marco says, it, 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 it's not going to a backup facility. It, it's kind of everyone um, working remotely. Often, I don't know if you had anything to add there. And then I also wanted to, to sort of come in yeah. on um, the interventions of major central banks in the markets and, and kind of how important they are and how you factor that into decision making. Because clearly a lot of the stresses in some of these markets, particularly uh, treasuries, for example, were alleviated by by the Fed. Um, so yeah, just if you have something on, on the first element, but in particular the, the second part. Yeah, please, of, of course. This is one of the... Just in terms of the continuity, um, we actually... We, the country went into lockdown fairly early, but... We had people working in both our main site and our backup site. We separated them out and kept them rel you know, relatively a few people in each site and spaced them around so they wouldn't be so and kept social distancing between people. And then we had some people working from home. Our main problem was actually getting finding enough laptops for people to work at home because the people didn't have laptops that were sufficiently powerful or set up to work with the bank systems. And there was actually a shortage of laptops in the country. So we were scrambling around trying to buy laptops mm -hmm. to get enough people working from home. 
The other thing that was, I think, something that we didn't expect, normally when we talk about business continuity, we think about a period where it's going to be a short period, where um, the amount of activity you will do will be fairly uh, low, and therefore you build your sort of systems to deal with it. The market start department does both the investment of the reserves and it does the various monetary policy programs. Um, so what we actually found was, first of all, this period of um, crisis went on far longer than we initially envisaged. And secondly, the amount of activity we were doing in the department as we rolled out various programs in, in the markets meant that our actual turnover was almost double or three times what we did in, in regular periods, and yet we only had half the number of people to do it. Plus, we were having to put in different types of um, programs that we hadn't done before, and we have to get into the systems. So it was the load on, on the workload on people was enormous um, of the people who were left actually doing the work. And that, I think, was the main thing we struggled with throughout that period. In terms of um, the reactions of monetary policy, I think one of the things that we've benefited from, both in sort of the investment side but also as a central bank, is that central banks have been become pretty well-versed in rolling out programs. There are plenty of people around who've had experience in the 2008-09 period uh, and in later periods in Europe. So I think certainly the major central banks were all pretty quick in rolling out programs. And I think that has certainly helped markets settle down um, probably quicker than they would have otherwise have done. Uh, George, I'm sorry. Chris, I, I think if, you if I may also yeah, respond on the business continuity challenges, because working from home was probably one of the most fascinating transitions and challenges of, of this time for the reserve managers. So, you know, we, we were all trained to work from the backup sites, which are usually separate buildings and where the only infrastructure is set up. But none of that training or testing proved to be useful under these circumstances. So we never we were never trained to work from home as entire team. Uh, so that, that was something new. Luckily, we had infrastructure for remote access, VPN-based. So just needed to buy extra notebook for the, notebooks for the staff, which in turn proved to be a challenge because of the high demand and disruption of the regular supply chain. But in two weeks' time, we were able to set up uh, remote access for entire resource management team. And we seamlessly moved all, all our operations, including trading and then settlement, and including uh, settlement using the SWIFT. Uh, obviously, there were uh, additional risks that we were facing. Uh, communication was a big issue because remote work requires a lot more interaction across and within the teams than, than usually. So before the, leaving the offices, we have created internal protocol and discussed it with the staff. Then we agreed to have regular meetings twice a day uh, with the manage, management and the division heads were required to have at least one online video meeting with their team uh, because keeping the face-to-face the, uh, -face communication is, is proved to be important. So we did introduce uh, additional control measures like additional extra reconciliations between the divisions, departments, across the systems. So earlier, uh, in the last couple of years, we have implemented uh, new uh, monitoring and then reconciliation tools uh, provided by SWIFT, like uh, payment controls or daily validation report. So all of that came handy in this new new environment and gave us additional peace of mind. So uh, the, the conclusion is that we were able to fully move all our operations without any compromises to, to remote work. And from today's perspective, uh, I, I can conclude it went very well. But I, I do understand that it's, it's a big challenge and for, for many, many organizations it, it did not Go go as smoothly. So it was a major transformation.
And, and on the intervention, so thank you for that. On the intervention um, by the, the, the major central bank or central banks more generally, um, what, what impact did that have for you? you? You were saying how you had to liquidate some of your uh, treasury and other um, liquid assets. Uh, did, did you, from after, after the sort of thing stabilized, did that all stop or was there a period where there was more limited intervention required from, from the reserves department? So, uh, as I mentioned, most of the stress, stress, both domestically and internationally, came in March. So, all of that went in, in parallel. So, uh, thanks to, to New York Fed, uh, I think, and to, to other central banks who supported the move, uh, I think things have, have stabilized uh, relatively fast. At least in the beginning of April, so, uh, the stress started subsiding. And uh, so it, it had the positive effect not only on the domestic market uh, in, in the U.S., but also internationally, especially the, the dollar swap lines that they have provided to, to major central banks and which have exceeded, I think, about $400 billion in, in May. So those, together with the uh, reduction of the policy rate as well as two very useful facilities, one for uh, mutual uh, fund liquidity facility and another for commercial paper funding facility. So all of that uh, helped markets to, to settle down rather, rather quickly. And uh, I think uh, once uh, the international markets uh, stabilized relatively, so it, it, it also had a positive spillover on the domestic market, including in emerging markets and including in Georgia. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, Mark, I don't know if you had anything that you wanted to add on the kind of interventions that, that have taken place, um, and it might dovetail a little bit into um, the attract, relative attractiveness of some of the, the, the more kind of traditional risk-free assets and, and how they perform um, during this kind of more recent stress. Mm -hmm. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think it's it's important to take into account, of course, that uh, especially the, all the measures coming from the Fed, uh, they have been uh, really unprecedented, particularly the fact that they they went beyond what they had done uh, in the global financial crisis. The fact in particular of buying uh, non-traditional uh, assets for monetary policy, which is basically corporate bonds, and in particular high-yield bonds, has created a very a strong support for the market, um, which is good for in the short term, right? We still don't know what will happen in the in the medium term, what implications, even political implications that may have on, on the Fed, right? But in the short term, it has worked. It has stabilized the market. Um, I, the distortions we mentioned and the loss of liquidity were very significant. We still suffer from, from this uh, liquidity at the moment. Um, however, it, it's not as bad as it, as it was during... Um, March and early April, so 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 they have worked. Um, however, uh, I think one of the the costs of this uh, of this uh, massive intervention, of course, is distortion in in prices. So in the case of reserve managers, I mean, for, for I mean, for the, the most important asset for reserve managers are are government bonds, and government bonds, their rates are extremely extremely low, right? So. Uh, in our case, what we're seeing is, that, of course, we're seeing a lot of discussions about our members regarding the future, right? What, what the uh, proper strategic as allocation should be in the future regarding, in particular, duration. The 10-year uh, bond is, is at uh, 60 basis points or 70 basis points. So, so then we have a major issue in terms of, of looking at the future, looking at, at, at rates. But we also can see that in other asset classes. So, uh, for example, in particular, the fact that uh, MBS, for example, they, they are still... Uh, attractive, right? But we know that the Fed is stepping in very strongly uh, into this market as well. So, so the level of intervention and the level two, the capacity to actually assess the the value of of some assets is is challenging challenging in this environment. And the same could be done could be said about uh, corporate bonds and equities. So, corporate bonds occur because the Fed is buying them. Um, but in the case of equities, equities have rebounded partly, right? Because they know that the Fed is buying corporate debt and the Fed is doing everything they can to stabilize some, some markets. So, so there is a significant question going forward in terms of, of uh, returns, right? So what that will mean for, 
for, for returns going forward. How long will the Fed step in? Of course, we know that from the previous uh, QE experience, we know that the Fed will not uh, step out of the market uh, uh, in a disorderly uh, manner. Uh, but we still have questions. I mean, uh, is the, the what, what is the, the, the value of this? What's the proper price? What's, what's the real market price of, of a lot of asset classes that are relevant for reserve managers? So, and so in particular, the question is, what's the value in terms of, of for example, in particular, government bonds and all the SSA sector, supra-sovereign and agencies, um, where, where we see, of course, uh, increased issuance, we see very low rates, um, and, and that's, of course, uh, also creating a lot of issues and, 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 and probably opportunities as well. Yes, that's very interesting. So there's this kind of uh, trade-off from having this buyer of last resorts, if that's the right phrase. Um, you get the liquidity if you need it in the emergency, but if you're looking to make um, investments, then it, it kind of distorts the markets. I, I guess that, that that might be what you're saying. Um, Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's always been a, a debate over the last few years of whether the, the bubble is in the equity market or the bubble is in the bond market. Um, right. Because if you think about it, what's happened with bonds with yields going down so much, then they make the um, present value of future profits from companies have a higher value today, and that's what's been, dri that's been part of what's been driving up equity prices. Um, so I think you have to have some form of um, view on, on where bond prices are going to be going forward. Um, and part of that, I think, is, is the collapse of inflation. Um, if inflation continues to be very low, then there's unlikely to be much of a ratchet in, in bond yields. Uh, and I think the debate is going to be what is going to be the impact of this um, crisis on inflation going forward. I mean, one of the things that's been driving things over the last few months has been the collapse of the oil price, which then produced a collapse in, in sort of break-even inflation rates. Um, uh, what the two forces that we could think about the, the crisis creating in terms of inflation over the next year or so, or next two years, is is the supply um, factor is going to be more powerful than the demand factor. So we've seen a breakup in the, in the supply chains. Um, you would think that they're going to have some form of impact on on prices. Um, the globalization is probably going to be under, under pressure. Supply chains are going to be under pressure. On the other hand, we've had a collapse in, in demand, and that works the um, the other way. So that whereas the, the, sorry, the supply side is going to be pushing up uh, prices, the demand side is going to be pu uh, pulling down prices. And then you have to make some form of gauges what's going to be the, the more permanent impact, the breakup, the breakdown in supply chains or the collapse in demand. Um, but at the moment, I think it's difficult to see that there'll be a sudden spike in inflation, even with the various uh, fairly unorthodox monetary poli policy measures. If you go back a few years, after sort of 2009, when we started rolling out, central banks started rolling out, out QE, there were people talking about, well, this is going to bring back inflation. Well, this never happened because demand, for the most part, was, was fairly um, subdued. Is that going to be the same going forward? Um, I think that's a, it's an open question. Uh, George, what are your thoughts on, on this uh, area? So we, I think we, we are asking uh, ourselves this question over and over again. So which of the forces will, will prevail, whether the disruption in the supply chains or, or, or declining demand? So I think one, one thing we can say that it's still still highly uncertain because we don't know how how things develop with the, the real cause of this turmoil, the, the pandemic situation. So, uh, so it, it can it may go either way. So uh, it feels like we will have to wait, wait and see because so it can it can really go either way. Thank you. So just in terms of um, 
the some of the rebalancing andrew you touched earlier on on whether whether it's time to what what is the right time to um buy up more equities to rebalance the portfolio i just wonder if george and, and marco whether there are any um challenges from your side in terms of um rebalancing where you have a diversified kind of agreed diversified portfolio uh, marco could i ask you that sir Sure. Um, well, that's that's a very important question. I think it's also very difficult to answer, right? I, I think probably if you ask more, I mean, most people uh, didn't foresee the the rebound we have seen in equities since uh, April. So most people were expecting probably that things would get worse. And actually, if you look at the number, every possible number, right? If you look at the economic data, even if you look at the earnings, right? That corporate earnings, they have been going down very very sharply but still you have a you have had a rebound in, in equity prices does that mean that equities are overvalued not necessarily right because we have also seen a, a rebalancing within equities right more towards sectors that are actually gaining from this situation technology for example so uh, that's a very i mean actually that's a very important question so so far the question is and probably and when we have the discussion uh, the, the issue is probably to focus on again think about what the long-term objectives are Right and and whether they still make sense for the current environment. Uh, in general terms, we could say that that uh, for most institutions, particularly long-term investors, uh, the situation has not changed significantly. I mean, there might be uh, issues of value, but the question is that it's really difficult to determine whether there will be a, another correction or whether equities will actually correct somehow or will keep on on going up. Um, not necessarily because they are overvalued, right? But because we, we can really see a, a rebalancing within the, core, the, the equity sector itself. So, so I think it's, it's probably just to, to rather than thinking about opportunistic uh, strategies, uh, which are very difficult to, to say whether it will be successful or not. It's better to focus on on rules on, re, on strong rebalancing rules. Of course, I mean if there are rebalancing rules. Does, don't make sense. Of course, it's time to revise them and to review them and to change them. Um, but at the moment, that that should be probably the focus. Thank you, George. Have you got any? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of your portfolios in certain types of assets. Um, but have you had any issues related to rebalancing? Is that something you give much consideration to? Yeah, Chris. Thanks, Seth, for that that question. So I, I think uh, we had slightly different approach to what what Marco has has described. We basically had two two priorities. One was accumulating cash to to support intervention needs, and uh, therefore we also needed to move uh, cash across the trenches. At the same time, we wanted to avoid unnecessary rebalancing. That was uh, partially triggered by to what we believe a temporary stress in the market. So um, we were helped a bit by international um, major index provided providers who uh, decided not to update benchmarks end of March so that mechanical rebalancing was, was avoided. Uh, so at the same time, we had high quality triple A rated but still credit spread products in the portfolio and because and when the spreads widened so uh, we went close to breaching the, the risk limits we had so in, in that situation we had either to to liquidate the positions to be in line with the then existing rebalancing rules or to keep positions and temporarily suspend the limit and uh, that scenario, suspending the limit, we, we uh, already had in our game plan, so we had it in mind. So when the stress hit, uh, we approached the board and asked to suspend some of the limits temporarily, including those on rebalancing, as well as duration tracking errors, spread duration limits. So not that we ended up with without limits, but we introduced soft limits on uh, uh, risk uh, unit level uh, which still still provided a framework but those were not hard limits and uh, effectively the uh, investment guideline imposed limits were, were suspended so uh, what what happened was that we were able to accumulate cash without breaching the limits uh, these spreads have have narrowed considerably since then 
and starting from June, that uh, waiver expires and we will be back to our normal investment guidelines. So this way we have avoided uh, unnecessary transaction costs as we think. So from today's perspective, we'll prove to be right. Fantastic, thank you. Just uh, generally, I guess I wanted to ask a question um, during this, this episode at least. Have diversification strategies generally generally worked? Um, Andrew, uh, you've obviously gone into quite a few interesting areas. Do you think that they performed how you kind of hoped they would? Diversification doesn't work when the um, um, when everything starts falling. When you talk about a central bank diversifying, it normally means it's diversifying diversifying into asset classes which have a higher beta with equities, whether it's equities themselves or whether it's corporate bonds or, or other similar assets. When the markets fall, well, that diversification is going to hurt you. But the, the thing to remember is that that decision to diversify your asset classes and going to and going to riskier asset classes is based around a longer horizon than than, a, than what we used to have and that when you're just trying to um, get high levels of liquidity and so that what you need to try and make sure is that when the crisis comes because the crisis will come is that you're not forced to uh, liquidate those those uh, riskier assets um, and one of the things that, that we, we, we thought about before the crisis was we have a sort of a risk level target or, or limit, and um, which is a, it's a CVAL limit. Um, and then the question was, what's, there are various different models of CVAL. You can use a short-term model, a medium-term, a long-term model, which are just taking longer um, uh, life uh, sort of uh, histories of, of asset prices to create that risk level. And we've gone for a longer one. So that, so that we wouldn't be forced because of a spike in short-term volatility to be reaching our risk levels and having to liquidate assets at precisely the, the wrong moment. And so that we've, we've been able to weather through, through this spike in the volatility without being forced to sell assets. In terms of the diversification question, as I alluded to before, so far, uh, bonds have, have done exactly what they've done in a period of equ equity falls. You've had capital gains on your bond portfolio. So that sort of um, diversification has worked very well. Um, going forward, I think it's going to be a lot more challenging. Are you still going to get the, the um, protection your equity portfolio from a, from a long duration um, sovereign bond portfolio, or do we need to now start think of other asset classes that are going to give us better protection? Maybe it's the time to look at gold again as a asset class that will give you a better form of diversification away from equities in the times of crisis. Maybe even uh, real estate, which tends to be less correlated with, or less certainly volatile, in, in the periods of uh, market dislocation. Um, but these are certainly things that we need to think about because the degree of protection given by bonds is unlikely to be as good as it has been over the previous decade. That's very, very interesting. Um, Marku, um, what, what do you make of that? And are there any um, tactical uh, opportunities or risk mitigation efforts, I guess, that um, reserve managers perhaps should be looking at it at the moment um i'd be very interested in your views and and perhaps we'll start sort of moving into the also uh, reviews of strategic asset allocations moving forwards mm -hmm. sure absolutely uh, i think it, i mean just probably in, in relating your question to to andrew's uh, answer uh, i think actually diversification is the answer i think diversification from my perspective i think diversification has worked for reserve managers if you look again, if you focus on the strategic allocation of, of, of reserves, right, which is something we looked at and actually we were able to see how the, the SAA of reserve manager, managers uh, was at the, uh, in the summer 2019, so less than a year ago, we, we, we looked at that, not only across our members, but across all central banks that responded to our survey, over 103 central banks around the world. 
what you see there is that the way they have they have diversified actually was good during this crisis because they have uh, invested they have diversified into new asset classes but they've done it in a very gradual manner so they haven't gone all out and that in, in no central bank that we know of, uh, for example, has invested 60% uh, in equities, for example. It's been a very gradual diversification, a very gradual process to diversify now the process. So when you look at that portfolio, right, uh, that portfolio or not, that portfolio has performed very well, right? Despite the underperformance in, in, in risk classes, uh, the fact that they invested most in, in governments, but also significantly in SSAs, uh, also means that basically the performance of the portfolio has been positive, and that's very important in this scenario. So your portfolio is actually performed as a whole, right? If you look at the portfolio as a whole, it has performed very well in this scenario. But going forward, diversification will still be more important. And, and I agree with Andrew when he says that that uh, a lot of asset classes I mean, need to be looked at in terms of, of thinking forward. So one issue, of course, and one traditional uh, way of looking at, at portfolio risk for research managers has been to focus on duration, portfolio duration. Uh, when we look at portfolio duration, definitely is, is not the answer, right? When you look at the extremely low level or even negative level, levels of, of, of um, long-term rates in, 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 in developed markets, then duration is definitely not the answer and it actually can create a lot of risk. What if the recovery, I, I don't think it's probably not nobody's uh, main scenario, but, but it's, there is one possibility that at some point the economic recovery will be stronger than, than we expect. Uh, if that happens, I think a lot of, uh, I mean, taking a lot of duration risk for only uh, for an additional few basis points probably is, is not worth it. So the answer again goes back to diversification. So trying to diversify your portfolios as much as possible, of course, within prudent risk limits. I think it's important. And, and I think we also have a, a lot of information right now in terms of of, of the, the stress that we can actually face, right? So we, we know we have a, a lot of scenario analysis that, so that can help us a lot. Uh, knowing how the portfolios behave, for example, in, in, in the, in the uh, Asian financial crisis, we can actually test our portfolios against the global financial crisis and against the current crisis, right? So if we can test those portfolios, see how they behave, and, and thinking about, about diversification and probably not taking necessarily a lot of, of duration risk, but also trying to look at across other, other asset classes, there are opportunities uh, when done in a, in, a, in a gradual manner. Of course, I mean, it's the, the, the riskier asset classes probably are not for all central banks. I think that's, I mean, the, the case of my co-panelists are actually very telling, right? Probably in the case of Georgia, well, uh, well George mentioned that probably he, 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 they weren't able to take a lot of risk, right? Because of the level of reserves, which is the opposite situation of, of, of Israel, right? So probably equities are not right for all central banks, uh, but within fixed income, there are still a lot of, I mean, diversifying within fixed income still makes a lot of sense. You still have, I mean, a small location, for example, to corporate, small location, more locations to, to other asset classes, and even even expanding and thinking about uh, this um, SSA exposure, right? Uh, what that means for the portfolios, especially in a in a world where where fiscal deficits are so large, right? So it's worth thinking about other asset classes uh, going forward. Uh, George, do you have anything you would like to to add? We've got about a minute minute left. Yeah. And I just quickly agree with, with Marco and Andrew. Marco, you raised a good point that these stressful times is a good uh, addition to the risk manager's arsenal of tools to do stress testing. So I certainly agree that diversification has worked to a certain extent, but in times of stress like this, when everybody flew to safety, of course, in, in certain uh uh, areas of diversification benefits where we're limited. Uh, so um, I think in conclusion, we, we can say that, so while there were no good times for the reserves managers, they could not relax in past few years. So investing in international markets was a big challenge, but I think the, the COVID pandemics had it even greater challenges immediately and also in the foreseeable future. So, but at the same time, probably these are also opportunities to transform the way we work and the way we invest, uh, including exploring new asset classes and new markets. I think that's inevitable.
Well, thank you. And, and, and unfortunately, on that note, we, we are uh, just about to run out of time. So I'd like to thank uh, all of our panelists for some really fascinating uh, insights. I know I learned a lot, and I hope that uh, our audience uh, did too. So many thanks to Andrew Abir, to Marco Luis, and George uh, Laliashvili. And uh, I do hope that you will be able to join us again on our next uh, central banking on-air discussion. Thank you.